Welcome to the Sheer Law Group's podcast of Truth Serum. Law, real estate, and everything else that matters. Sheer Law Group represents lenders, landlords, and investors throughout the state of California, with offices in the San Francisco Bay Area and Orange County, California. Laws change daily. Economic trends change faster than at any time in history. Ignorance is not bliss, and the unwary and unprepared get punished if they fail to keep up. If you want insightful information on issues of interest to the real estate lender, landlord, or investor, you've come to the right place. Add on some colorful commentary on everything else that matters, and you're now ready for Truth Serum with your host, Spencer Shear. Truth Serum wants to thank Hartwood House for becoming a sponsor of the Truth Serum podcast. Hartwood House is a world-class medical detoxification facility that's located in Marin County, California. Alcohol or drug addiction doesn't have to destroy your life or the ones you love. There is hope. For more information about Hartwood House, go to www.heartwooddetox.com. That's www.heartwooddetox.com. Hartwood House where addiction meets compassion and recovery. It wasn't that long ago that economists were touting the V-shaped recovery. A V-shaped recovery is just like it sounds, just like the shape of a V. There's a great run-up in the economy, a big dip into recession, and then a vertical climb back to the top of the V. And it sure looked that way after the pandemic eased. But if you take a closer look, the recovery may have been a mirage, with the price to be paid being even a more severe recession in the future. Because unlike most economic rebounds, the post-pandemic recovery was fueled in large part by massive government stimulus, both easing of monetary policy by central banks, such as interest rate reductions to almost zero, and massive QE, and fiscal government monetary policies such as sending checks to anyone who could fog a mirror, removing the requirements to pay rent and mortgage payments, passing huge deficit budgets to fund often worthless or suspect projects, were clearly the catalyst to an economic rebound after the pandemic waned. Inflation surely was the immediate result, but now there's mounting evidence that inflation may be a byproduct of supply chain disruptions commodity disruptions resulting from the war in Ukraine, and a temporary surge in consumer demand that's likely unsustainable. There's increasing evidence that a recession is in view and that it may have already begun, and that the Fed may be fighting the wrong battle by furiously raising rates now, and in fact they may have to switch back to easing in order to avoid an even worsening recession. There's many factors that support this view, And noted economist A. Gary Schilling, who I followed for years and has been right for a long, long time, has listed a few, and I'll go through some of them. Make your own decision. First is the inverted yield curve, really, this year. uh, That means the inverted yield curve is when short-term rates on two-year bonds exceed the rates on 30-year bonds. This is usually a harbinger for recession. Second is massive reduction in QE by the Fed. Number three, consumer purchases on transient services such as travel and restaurants is increasing, which is really temporary economic growth, while consumer purchases of durable goods like cars, washers, and dryers, and 
Factor 11 CDs, which support longer-term growth, is starting to weaken. Housing's starting to dip. Housing starts uh, are starting to drop. There's fewer home sales, fewer building permits requested, fewer mortgage applications, and fewer refinances. Rising rates by the Fed will only add fuel to the fire and likely tank the housing market. China, which is one of our greatest economic trading partners, has already severely cut its estimates for growth. And they've cut their exports dramatically, partially because of a draconian pandemic lockdown policy. But clearly, if China goes down, it's going to impact the world economy as well. Job market strength and the potential impact on rising wages, which is a key worry of the Fed, as far as inflation goes, may appear to be overstated. And there's evidence now of a cooling job market. Consumer confidence is waning. This is evidenced by recent companies such as Walmart and Target. Uh, their stock tanking after they announced weakening prospects uh, for consumer purchases in the coming years. So forewarned is forearmed. And we at Shear Law Group, we see increasing evidence of rising delinquencies across the board in consumer and commercial loans. And perhaps this means nothing. Perhaps there will be a V-shaped recovery after all. However, at the storm clouds we see portend rain, now's the time to prepare. Prepare your investments, your job situation, your spending and your risk tolerance, because it's likely to be a wild ride. Join me now as I interview Steve Stone, CEO of First United Credit Union, as we discuss the impact of the pandemic on credit unions and the resiliency of credit unions in a rapidly changing financial market. And finally, as we take a fascinating look into some of the most underrated rock and roll bands of all time. Truth Serum wants to thank Iron Oak Home Loans for becoming a sponsor of the Truth Serum podcast. Iron Oak is a full-service portfolio private money lender, and it's a servicing company. It's located in San Ramon, California, helping its investors to achieve maximum return by investing primarily in California real estate. For borrowers, not all borrowers have AAA credit, and sometimes you need a lender who understands and who can get you a loan when you need it most. Iron Oak can help. Great service and great people. If you want more information, go to www.ironoak1.com. That's www.ironoak1.com. Or call Rich at 925-803-2465. Or call Christy Mathers at 925-281-2809. Steve Stone, you're the CEO of First United Services Credit Union. It was founded in Alameda County for Alameda County employees, now open to everybody. You started at the credit union in 1991 as the collections manager, and you've been a compliance officer. Previously, you worked for Beneficial Finance for three years. You're a UC Berkeley graduate, a lifetime Bay Area guy, and in my experience, an all-around good guy. Welcome to Truth Serum, Steve. <laughs> Welcome. Happy to be here, Spencer. Thanks for taking the time today. You're welcome. All right. Now that the pandemic apparently is coming to an end, let's discuss some of the uh, impacts that it might have had on credit unions. So what do you think as far as yeah. long lasting uh, impact? What, what, do you, what would you say 
the, the result of the pandemic has been on credit unions? Well, you know, I think the, the first thing, and this was an impact on every business, is it moved us into a, a, a hybrid model of work from home. There's nothing like uh, being forced to get out of Dodge and get going on that. So something that we had talked about for years prior and never really did anything suddenly became a reality. So I think that's been a real benefit. But, you know, as far as the impact on credit unions, we've always been an industry that tries to help people out. And so, you know, we're a portfolio lender. We work with our borrowers. We make a lot of loans, uh, car loans, mortgages, et cetera. So the first thing is we ramped up our efforts on how do we help people out? And, uh, you know, the nice thing with this is it really forced us to get serious about our pr- processes. So, you know, we're, we're an operation that would have, I don't know, a handful of people on a given day would, would need assistance. And suddenly we had hundreds, thousands of people we needed to modify loans for. So it did cause us to put a process in place that worked much smoother. And, uh, you know, one thing that a lot of the industry has seen, but not so much for us, is just the reliance on digital. When you can't really have people coming in your doors, you need to do something different. And we were already pretty far down that path. We're doing most of our loan processing remotely. Uh, most of the interactions financially are through mobile app, plastic cards, etc. So not a huge change there. But you know, it's it's really just forced us as an industry and forced First United specifically into fine-tuning how we do things. And I think that, you know, that's been a good thing. Uh, and what we really got was something that would have taken years compressed into a very short period of time. There's nothing like the fear of, you know, you might get sick and die to motivate people to get on with it. Truly. No, the pandemic accelerated everything. Let me let me go back on some of the things you said, because that's interesting. First, on the remote work thing, uh, again, everybody's got their own impression on that. But in my impression, I, I'm, I'm an office guy. But do you think remote work is efficient or is it just a stopgap to allow people to continue to survive? I think it's really efficient. Uh, that being said, I've come in the office just about every day since the start of the pandemic. I'm an office guy as well. I uh, never really set up a home office, but I live close to work, so I don't have a commute to worry about. But, you know, our, our first fear was people aren't going to be productive. There's no way to monitor this. Uh, they're not going to get things done. And we found out very quickly that people, for the most part, are much more productive because, one, they haven't spent you know 45 minutes in traffic getting here. They don't clock in and then go get a cup of coffee, start eating something, talk to their friends and, you know, not do anything productive for the first 20 minutes. So the bell rings, people start working. And uh, as long as there's a way to make sure that you're monitoring output, I don't mean that by spying on people, but just having a setup where you can see what people are doing, you know, our, our staff at our call center, which are mostly working remotely. You can measure the calls. You can measure the time they're on a call, the time they're not on a call. Loan staff, how many loans are they processing? Are the numbers what they should be? And we, we found things really worked well. Where, where it became a challenge is you know, it worked well holding things together and continuing doing what, you're, what we're doing, but trying to get people together and further the business, come up with new ideas, collaborate, et cetera, uh, you know, scheduling stopping by and saying, hey, what do you think about this doesn't work as well. So 
you know, that, that's been a challenge. And what we've ended up falling on after a bit with uh, myself and my, my direct reports, our chief officers, uh, they're, they're in here a couple of days a week, two, three days for the most part, but we have a standing meeting where we just get in the room and talk about what's going on. And there's a lot of Zoom meetings and things of that nature. But I, I think, you know, long-term, it still requires a bit of planning uh, because you want to have the interactions with people, but you don't want to force it with people. And, you know, Initially, we had people coming in the office because we'd say, well, we need you in here a day a week. And they'd come in and they'd go in an office and close the door and you'd see them eight or nine hours later going home. And I thought, well, that's not really accomplishing anything. Uh, So it it takes a little organization to have the right people on site at the right time. But, you know, one thing we've done is as a lease came up on some space we had, we let it go. So I don't have enough room to have our entire staff come on site. At the same time, which I think, and I use that for the staff when they say, well, you're going to make us come back every day. I don't have a place to put you. So no, that's one way to, to uh, implement remote work. That <laughs> by, by, That's good. And I appreciate that. I, I, I do. I, I'm weighing it in my own mind. I, I assume that's the way the future is going to be. But I, I do agree. I, you sounds like you have kind of a benevolent big brother. You can see what people are doing, but yet you need the collaborative uh, interaction on occasion. That's that's a good synthesis. Yeah, yeah. It's really just trying to figure it out because I also think, you know, you want to have some kind of schedule, but being so strict and saying it has to be three days a week or two days a week or you're here on every Tuesday, it just doesn't quite work. And, and you know, work and life aren't that. But we, we also, through the pandemic, uh, picked up a few people working in different states, which was more of uh, getting a, you know, a set of talents that we couldn't find locally, but we found out that works pretty well, too. So, that's opened up some things, although you then have to comply with multi-state uh, wage and hour laws, signage, et cetera, you know, posting all the labor signs for a given location when the location is somebody's house is a little odd, but you, know, you, you make it work. So it's opened up options. No, I agree. Labor law became a necessary component of uh, servicing and administration. That's true. Got, yeah. let, let me hit on another item that you raised, and that's uh, you said you had basically thousands of these forbearance agreements, and I get that. I'm I, sitting here and on the other side of uh, you know litigation on the uh, loan servicing side. I, I've never seen anything like it. I mean, literally thousands, tens of thousands, hundreds of thousands, millions of borrowers across the country are put into forbearance. Uh, sometimes on you know one agreement after another, deferral, maybe a loan mod. What do you think, just as an overview, what do you think the chances are that most people are going to end up paying these things back, or do you think they're going to get, uh, the default rate is going to rise dramatically? Well, you know, I I think the default rates are going to go up and down as they always have, but at least in our experience, like I said, we we had just over 2,000 deferrals that we granted. Most of those were a three-month, you know, the beginning, everybody's just, what's going on? Let's just put a policy in place, make this happen. We we put together a policy for our board to approve that outlined the conditions of what we would do with what documentation. And we had a real streamlined process. And a lot of people took it probably because they just didn't know if they needed it or not, because out of those 2,000, uh, you know, maybe 30 ended up needing something after the initial three months where we sat there and worked out a custom modification uh, plan with them. And, you know, we, we did have a few people who we ended up uh, writing off loans for, but ultimately delinquency came down. And I think it showed that 
most people, especially if you work with them and give them something that's feasible, uh, are going to make make things work and they're going to pay you. So, you know, for us, I don't see defaults increasing as a result of the end of the forbearance and all of these things being done. Uh, overall, for the industry, you know, de- it depends on what what was done. And if you were looking at a six month or twelve month forbearance or a significantly lower payment. There's going to be some problems with this. And I go back to you know 2008, 9, 10, when we went through a similar but different situation. And you know, we we had some, I call them the, the Hail Mary modifications that we made. And three or four years later, the the end came due. And in many cases, we figured out a way to modify it again, which either was stretching out the inevitable or it was waiting for values to recover. And thankfully it was waiting for values to recover. And uh you know, we, we've seen those those loans, which were completely underwater, come well back into the money. So, so overall, I think things are going to work out, uh, especially because we've got, especially when it comes to mortgages, underwriting standards are a lot different. So you've got people who, at the time they got the loan, could afford the loan. And if you can get them through this patch, as long as you're not going to hit them with, you know, you've deferred 12-month payments, and at the end of that period, all 12 come due again, which is completely unrealistic. So it's, you know, setting up something that has a realistic chance of being addressed when you get further down the road, I think is the key. And if, if lenders, if services are doing that, they shouldn't have a massive increase in defaults, but you know, it depends on where the economy's at too. A good response. Again, you're as, as a credit union CEO, you're seeing more of a provincial, uh, workout arrangement. You know your borrowers a little more. You're uh, you're not doing things necessarily in mass, but if you look at some of the uh, you know the GSE loan mods, some of these went on there maybe 12, 18 months worth of deferral, and all got put at the end of the loan. And again, would your response be any different if you thought real estate prices might be say 10, 15 percent lower a year from now? You think you think that would uh, change your response on whether people would pay back or not? Yeah. Well, I you know I, I think. It would change it a little bit, but if it was put on the end of the loan and real estate values are 15% lower in a year or so, unless the end of the loan is in a year or so, it's too far out in the future that really anybody is going to be thinking that much about it. Uh, And so, you know, yeah, when you've done something like that, you've tacked it on at the end. I mean, people get 30-year mortgages, but it's like a car. They're, They're buying payments. And so if they've got a payment they're comfortable with, most people within a reason aren't looking at their equity position. You know, we saw this again 10 years ago, though, that the equity fell so far that people were looking and saying, wait a minute, it makes absolutely no sense to pay double what this house is worth. But 10, 15%, that's, you know, that's normal market fluctuations. We forget that the market didn't always just go up year over year. But yeah, I think if, if values go down, that's always going to have a bit of an impact, but I don't see it as a major crash. And, you know, and I hope I'm right. Yeah, me too. I <laughs> Another factor, more of a psychological factor, you think people are getting used or used to not paying back on the loan, getting a deferral and getting some relief, and that uh, the pandemic assistance that was given, which dwarfed anything I've ever seen, uh, has kind of ensconced that mentality in borrowers? You know, I, I think that's a real problem. And especially when you're talking long-term deferrals of 
mortgage payments. Uh, same thing we're seeing, I think, with with the uh, rent and the eviction moratoriums. The longer people go without paying you, the you know the more they get into the habit of not paying you, and it almost becomes a right to not pay. Uh, makes the collection piece much more difficult. You know, for for that reason, again, being a portfolio lender, we have a lot more flexibility in what we do, but we like to keep money coming in on a regular basis, even if we've severely cut back on that, because we want people to remember, you need to pay for this. Uh, you know, yeah, you come back after 12, 18 months and say, okay, it's time to start now. That's going to be a tough, tough piece. And uh, so that those types of things could well lead to some defaults. And again, it's just, it's also a shift of consumer mentality, which makes it tougher to collect. And, you know, frankly, that if there's enough sentiment that feels like it's my right not to pay you, that is going to lead to potentially more uh, regulation that makes it easier for that to become the norm. And that that can be a real challenge for lenders. That's true. All right, let's switch a little bit. Can, can credit unions remain competitive in this type of a market and, you know, and, and drill that down to uh, First United as well? Yeah, well, you know, it's been credit unions being competitive has been a tough thing for a lot of years just because we're in a commodity business. And so really what, you know, what we do is not much different from what the other credit unions we compete against and what the big community, big banks, the community banks are doing. So what differentiates it? And technology has been a blessing and a curse. It uh, helps us gain economies of scale. It makes it easier for people to switch which helps us bring in business, but it also makes it much easier to find out what else is out there. And so it's easier for us to lose business. Uh, you know, we, we need to compete on price to a degree, but I, I look at a credit union, at least for the foreseeable future. If you take the Amazon model, which in my opinion is I mean, not their complete model, there's a whole lot to it, but they've developed a reputation of it's reliable and it's a reasonable price. And so if you want something, most people check Amazon. As long as the price doesn't blow you away as crazy, you're going to buy it. You're not going to shop around. And I think if we can be that, that people look to us and if the price is good, they trust us, they know what the experience is, uh, they know they're going to get a fair deal. They're not going, most people are not going to then shop it to death. And, uh, pick and choose. Some people will. So I think there's relevance there. And I think we have to, as credit unions, uh, just continue to push our relevance and add value, which means we can be more flexible. Uh, you know, if, if we offer that, there, there's an appeal to that. And we, we are local when you're talking to uh, First United staff, they, they live here, they work here, except for our man in Montana. But, uh, you know, it's uh, it, that does make a difference to people, but people will buy local up to a point, but they're not going to spend too much extra money to do it. And frankly, I don't want to have people pay more to do business with us, but uh, we we have a tough market because if nothing else, you know, you have to explain what a credit union is. And the problem with that is you see, the way you explain it is you say, well, we're like a bank, but and so you know when your definition includes your competition that is a, a bit of a disadvantage, but I, th- I think we overcome it and we continue to grow. So that shows we must be doing something right. I think so. And I, I hope so as well. What, what about embedded banking services, for lack of a better word? Are you familiar with that term? 
I'm sorry, what was that, Spencer? Embedded banking services where like a bank or possibly a credit union can integrate uh, its financial products with other services so that a uh, consumer gets a whole package. For example, you'd call Uber and Uber would be tied into the First United Services credit so it wouldn't have to be that they pay them and then separately do it in a credit card. They could do it all in one place. Is that something on the horizon, you think, for credit unions? I, I think it is. And I, I think for uh, most financial services, it needs to be. And, you know, we talk about the competition from fintechs and the fear was you know, somebody's going to invent an app and it's going to take over banking. But the reality seems to be more, no, we need to partner and create better front ends and, and get that integration. So it's something that's definitely on our horizon and looking for ways to embed ourselves in the process. And that leads to a lot more convenience for the consumer. And, you know, really a bank or a credit union at its core, our role, and it's been this way for hundreds of years, is to facilitate, you know, movement of funds or things of value to provide people what they need. So your example, you need a ride, you get an Uber, it comes out, the money comes from somewhere. We happen to be the people moving that money around and making sure it comes in here, it goes out there. I, I think there's a big role with that. And I think it's a great way for us to to grow and to uh, prosper and partnering with others who may have the technology but don't have the infrastructure to make all of this work. And uh, in the end of the day, the consumers win. And that's probably a way for credit unions and other financial institutions to continue to remain relevant for the foreseeable future. Uh, let's switch over to Bitcoin, everybody's favorite uh, uh, either gambling habit or uh, investment, <laughs> however you want to look at it. Uh, is there yeah. a clamor at all at, at your credit union for people to be able to either use Bitcoin or invest in Bitcoin through the credit union or or not? We're seeing very little clamoring for it at First United. Uh, I talked to some of the credit unions in the South Bay area, and they have a greater interest in it uh, amongst their member base. We're, we're, we're not seeing it. And, you know, that's something that I, I read a lot about, I pay a lot of attention to, but I'm still trying to wrap my head around what this is actually bringing to the table. Uh, you know, one of, the, one of the things we've looked at is, can we just step in here and help facilitate the purchase of Bitcoin or other crypto for members? And, and there's ways we can do that. I do have a concern that if, we, if we're doing that and somebody loses a ton of money in it, they're going to blame us to a degree, no matter how many disclosures and disclaimers we put up there, that we're just helping you buy this. Uh, but, uh, you know, other than that, I just, I, I still look at something and I wonder, am I just completely missing the boat on this? But you've got something that's designed to avoid the general banking system, but it's still denominated and traded in dollars, which somehow seems to link it pretty closely to the banking system it's trying to avoid. Uh, you know, I'm just not quite seeing where the value is there. The, the other area is it gets companies good press when they announce we're now taking payment. You can buy a cup of coffee in Bitcoin. You can buy a car in Bitcoin. And it, it gets some press. It's all over the news. But are they actually doing it? And kind of what's the point if I have to convert my dollars into Bitcoin to go to Starbucks to buy the cup of coffee with Bitcoin? Have I saved time? Have I accomplished anything? So. You know, I'm, I'm sort of thankful we're not seeing a big demand for it yet within our membership. Yeah, it's really the opposite. Can you convert the Bitcoin into dollars? That's one of the problems with Bitcoin. But let's talk about that for a second, because I think it's more of a, of a bigger social, uh, you know, a, a social issue. And that is 
again, Bitcoin is a marquee name for the, the uh, tech that it runs on, which is blockchain and distributive ledger. And you're right. I mean, people looked at Bitcoin as a way to escape financial scrutiny. But now it looks like that that technology, you know, apart from the marquee name of Bitcoin, Ethereum, etc., uh, is being rushed into uh, the financial structures of all you know, financial institutions all over the world. Now, the Chinese uh, just went to a digital yuan. Uh, and the U.S., it looks like they're not that far behind. And basically, the utilization of the tech would be so that every single financial transaction you do could be monitored instantaneously. Uh, it can be regulated. Some people argue that the Fed may uh, utilize digital currency to be able to become the only bank of choice and eclipse all the other financial institutions. In other words, bigger, bigger picture uh, uh, issues than... Uh, we're talking about generally, but I'm wondering, do you think as far as digital currency goes, uh, can you see that to the point? I mean, everybody, everything that's done financially now is done digitally. You have credit card transaction digitally. You have uh, you know, your checking accounts done digitally. But this is something where, in essence, you'd use blockchain to be able to regulate every single financial transaction and have someone be able to, to uh, monitor and, in effect, use it to uh, maybe rob you of your privacy. What do you think about that? You know, I think that may well be the evolution of this, because like you said, we already have the point that most financial transactions are electronic ledger entries, and they're being transmitted through various electronic sources. You know, the, the days of checks being physically flown from one Federal Reserve Bank to another and clearing are, are long gone. So I could see that evolution, and you know, it's funny if something that starts off as a way to create more privacy becomes the central clearing point. Uh, you know, would that cause the Fed to become the only bank? I, I still see that there is a need for. I mean, the, the Fed, in a sense, is the bank for banks right now. So, I would see other financial institutions would remain as the front end piece of it, and you know, maybe it's just a variation of if we. We uh, partner with a fintech company, and we're making it happen, and they're the face of it. Uh, but no, that that could well be the next evolution as the Federal Reserve processing and ACH networks and Visa and Mastercard rails and all these things sort of collide. Because we continue to work towards how can we clear things faster and faster and faster, and that might get us to it. And yes, it would give up a lot of privacy. Uh, yeah, probably not a good thing. Just it doesn't feel right. On the other hand, I don't know how much does it matter. Uh, you know, one of the things that I've said to people will say, well, the government's monitoring us is I don't think the government cares that much about you in particular. So maybe they could monitor you, but they're, they're not really or they're doing nothing with the info. But yeah, it's, you know, privacy continues to erode and we have let that happen. And we, you know, we sign up for all sorts of things. Uh, you know, California, we've got some pretty strong privacy laws out here. And so what happens when you go to a website? We now just have to click I agree to cookies, which we didn't have to do a couple of years ago. And how many people actually stop and customize it or say no? So in a sense, you know, we, we keep giving up privacy and we've even created more work for ourselves in the process. Now, I agree There's so much in that uh there's so much in that, but I mean, just taking it one step farther because it is there's never been in my mind this kind of change in this shorter period of time. 
But when you look at even what just what happened with uh, you know the result of the Ukraine war, so the U.S. government went out and they used the SWIFT system or whatever other uh, you know mechanisms they could to restrict uh, use of the dollar or access of the dollar by Russia. So Russia suddenly looked around and said, hey, the federal banks that, uh, or, or the central banks, which are supposedly you know, giving us unfettered access to our cash, won't, and we need to find an alternative. So they're looking around for ways to escape the hegemony of the dollar and the federal banks. And if that happens, and it turns out that you've got you know, various larger entities scrambling like the Chinese do to create their own digital currency that's integral to their system, you can see the Fed doing the same thing. The danger, it seems like, as far as privacy goes, is that the Chinese, they rate people on the basis of their obedience to the system, and they can debit or credit money to your account. And the frightening thing might be if the Fed or anybody else had that same power and did the same to us. Wouldn't that be pretty frightening? You know, that that would be incredibly frightening. And, and you're right, a, a whole lot of this stuff, whether something matters or not, depends on, quote, the system and, uh, you know, who's in charge and what's happening and what, what it's being used for. But you're right, there's much greater potential for abuse with something like that. And, you know, with, with uh, suddenly all your assets just disappear because you clicked on the wrong thing or said the wrong thing or, or uh, what have you. There's, yeah, there, there's some real problems there. Uh, you know, what can be done about it is, is the question. That's a great question. I think there's a time for time to stand up now. And, and I think there has to be a balancing of individual rights along with the tech that is certainly intrusive. But whether that happens or not, can only hope. Yeah, no, I, th- I think you're right. I mean, every, every day it gets harder and harder to pull things back and retain some form of privacy. And, or, you know, you feel like the, the song lyric, you don't know what you've got till it's gone. <laughs> That's true. That's a great transition to my next question, which is, who is the best guitarist of all time? <laughs> well, now we get to the interesting stuff. Forget all this banking. That's depressing. <laughs> well, it can be. <laughs> uh, best guitarist of all time is is such a tough question. You know, there, there's so many ways to look at it. You've got the technical ability. You've got how do they fit within the songs, the bands, an individual. Uh, you know, Hendrix is is thought by many to be one of the best guitarists of all time, but I'm not a big Hendrix fan other than I'm impressed by what he can do. Uh, Les Paul, I think, is a great guitarist. Uh, Barney Kessel, Bill Keegy, uh, all, all good guitarists who are out there. That's quite and, a range uh, of guitarists you just gave me. That's great. <laughs> well, you know me. I do listen to a lot of different stuff, and it depends on on the mood and everything else. I'll throw one else, other one at you, uh, John Cipollina, who was in Quicksilver Messenger Service and in, you know, the 70s and 80s, and he died at the end of the 80s at a young age. But this guy was in four or five bands at the same time, and you could see him playing pretty much every night locally with a different band uh, and just, you know, a real innovative guy and uh, brought a lot to it. But, you know, for, for me, it's not so much who's the best guitarist, but how does it fit in and who who gives you the most entertaining mix of things along with the, the theatrics or the pyrotechnics or what have you. But I'm sure I'd give you a different list on a different day too. Now I like that list. I mean, it's, it's amazing. Some of the guitarists, it's just some of the things I've seen. I saw, you ever see Tommy Emmanuel? 
Tommy Emmanuel. No, I haven't. I, yeah, I would check him out. He's amazing. He has a video with his brother Phil where they're both playing. Phil's a rocker and he's an acoustic guy, and they're both both amazing virtuoso musicians. They're, they're playing each other's instrument at the speed of light at the same time. So one's <laughs> one's going over and grabbing the other guitar, and the other's grabbing. The, but just it's amazing what people can do, and uh, everybody has their, their favorites. <laughs> All right, another. Let's I, I guess I could have put you on that list too, Spencer. You're a pretty good guitar player. Yeah, I appreciate you saying that, and you're you're being nice to me. But I've struggled hard to be <laughs> average, and I've arrived. But some of these guys, they are uh, in a whole nother world. How about the most? It is amazing. How about the most underrated band of all times? I saw you, you told me one of them. I, I, I laughed out loud. But tell me the most underrated band. <laughs> well, you know, I've, I've been a fan of the Monkees for about forty years, which gave me a whole lot of flack, and they're maybe starting to get a little more uh, recognition and respect. They, you know, they were a band who had unlimited money behind them, which meant great studios, great producers, great songwriters, and uh, you know put out a lot of really good songs and uh, Mickey Dolan's of the monkeys has a wonderful voice for rock and roll. He just finished up another short tour a couple of days ago, which didn't come out here. So I didn't get to see him, but uh, that's one. Uh, I'm a big fan of the kinks who don't get the same respect as the others from the British invasion. But uh, again, great songwriting, great playing and uh, you know, other underrated bands. Again, uh, it's going to depend on, on what day you, you ask me that question? Who, who would you say, Spencer? Underrated bands. Let me, uh, you know, it's funny because I'm looking at things now. I mean, again, I come from the same generation you do. I love the old you know, 60s, 70s music. But I've become a phenomenal bluegrass fan. I, I can't believe the musicianship okay. of what comes out. People are playing at the speed of light. And good stuff. There's a guy named Billy Strings who's just an amazing guitarist. Underrated and unknown. But... He's starting to get up there. Uh, I've I, I heard some Billy Strings, and yeah, he is really good. Yes. You like his music? And I do. I do. And no, bluegrass is great. I mean, bluegrass banjo, the speed in which those guys can play. And uh, I love it because, you know, they're just, they're not moving other than their fingers, and it's just flying. And, you know, I've tried playing banjo a few times, and it, uh, it ain't easy. <laughs> Yeah, just uh, I guess this is probably more information than anybody wants to hear. But I just started picking up the banjo. I've got I got my ten thousand hours in on the guitar. The banjo I've probably got about seven or eight hundred hours. But it is difficult. But it's a beautiful instrument. Love it. It, it really is. Although it scares a lot of people off too. But All right, back to the monkeys for a second. Now, how can you say the monkeys are underrated? Because I think I, I like their music, like the songs. I, I I get a smile when I hear them. But only, I think, what, there was only two musicians in the band, right? The rest of them were, weren't they lip-syncing it, like Davy Jones and the other guy you, there? You, you did have, uh, at least when they started out, yeah, two true musicians, two actors. And uh, you know, Davy Jones played a mean tambourine, so I won't uh, stand up for his <laughs> musical ability. But it was one of those things that, uh, you know, like, like Ringo and the Beatles, he just completed the group and... Mickey Dolan's one of the other actors became a really good songwriter and singer, and so uh, it just sort of worked. But I think you know, the the of the musicians you had Mike Nesmith who wrote various hit songs before the Monkees even came about, and he could play. And uh, you know, just putting it all together. So I, I'd say underrated because it's a band that you'd mention them, and people would just poo poo it. But uh, 
you know, great songs. They they sold a lot of records too. That's true. All right, so they escaped the ignominious designation of like Millie Vanilli because they had at least two guys who could play. <laughs> yeah, this is true. And, and they, you know, they were singing and playing on a lot of their stuff, but they had others playing along with them, and they they had the the best players out there. You know, I mentioned Barney Kessel earlier. He played on some monkeys records. Uh, Neil Young played on on some monkeys records. All right. Any more underrated bands before we close this uh, subject out? Uh, well, I'm going to give a plug for, because I listen to only old stuff, but the, the new band I've been listening to is uh, called the, the Delvon Lamar Organ Trio. And one of our branch managers turned me on to these guys. They're an organ trio, guitar, uh, organ, and drums, and they play instrumental stuff. It's all really soulful. Their guitar player is a guy named Jimmy James, who is kind of the, you know, up-and-coming generation can play anything and they're just a really great band and well worth checking out so are they local you know they are out of the pacific northwest but they do play around here uh, i think that they uh recently were playing down in santa cruz which is a little further than i want to travel but i'm sure that uh, they'll you know periodically make the bay area around so uh you know check them out and uh they're they're good good all right coming in for a landing here anything else do you think is important for uh, listeners who are either thinking of uh, becoming a member of a credit union or credit union members or, uh, you know, their, their officers or directors, what would you say to the credit union industry as a whole? Well, you know, the, the credit union industry is effectively like banking, except we are owned by our members, which means that our profits go back into the organization and therefore tr- go to the people who bank with us. So the more people we have, the better off we are and the better a deal they get. And so, you know, check out credit unions because uh, you can get anything you can get from a bank and you're going to get it at a better rate and you're going to get a much better experience. You can talk to people, uh, you can work with people and uh, they're, you know, it's a great, great place to work. It's a great place to bank. And, uh, you know, I think the credit union industry has a, a strong future and, other than that, you know, I'd just like to, to thank you, Spencer, for uh, giving me the time to, to chat a bit. We've known each other for more years than perhaps I can count, and you've always been a, a good friend and a good business partner. So uh, glad to see that uh, Shearer Law Group continues to thrive and that you're doing this podcast now. Thanks for saying that. I appreciate your friendship as well. If I do decide I want to start a rock and roll or bluegrass credit union, can I count on you for support? You got it. I'm in 100%. <laughs> All right. Thank you, Steve. I appreciate it. All right. Take care, Spencer. I'm signing off. Thanks again, Steve. All right. Bye now. Bye. Thank you for listening to Sheer Law Group's podcast, Truth Serum. Law, real estate, and everything else that matters. For more on the law, go to www.shearlawgroup.com or contact Spencer or Joshua Shear. For more info on real estate, see your real estate broker or agent. Don't forget to mow your lawn, trim your hedges, and pay your mortgage. For more information on everything else that matters, read good books, cultivate good friends that you can share ideas with, pray often, and do not place your hopes in governmental institutions. Write Spencer Shear if you want to argue the points made in this podcast. 
Finally, this podcast cannot be relied on as legal advice, and SLG disclaims any responsibility for the ideas presented. See an attorney if you have issues or problems related to the subjects mentioned in this podcast. Adios, amigos.